Welcome back to the Profitable Python. I am your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Carl Gold. Carl is Zora's chief data scientist and is the creator of the Subscription Economy Index. He is writing a book titled Fighting Churn with Data on using data to increase subscriber engagement and reduce churn. Carl has a PhD from the California Institute of Technology and has first author publications in leading machine learning and neuroscience journals. Before coming to Zora, he spent most of his post-academic career as a quantitative analyst on Wall Street. Now a data scientist, he uses a variety of tools and techniques to analyze data around online systems. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on here. And I want to kick this off with the first question. How did you first become interested with inventing new approaches to data analysis? Well, that's a kind of broad question. I mean, I've always been someone who likes doing new stuff and, you know, answering new questions. And in fact, I mean, after college, I, I was like a software engineer for a couple of years. And one of the reasons I wanted to go back to graduate school was that, I mean, not to put down software engineering, but a lot of it's kind of, there's some like repetitiveness, you know, in a lot of software engineering projects. I'm sure most software engineers would agree with that. <laughs> um, and if, when you, but if you're doing research, uh, like I started doing, you know, during my PhD and I continue to do in my job, then, I mean, by nature, it's always new, right? Because if it wasn't new, you wouldn't call it research. It's like it's engineering if it's like, if there's an established system, you know, already mm. doing it. But it's research and it's science if like no one's really done it before. So you're kind of making it up. So I just seek out, you know, I, I'm attracted to problems like that where, <clears throat> I don't know, there's something new to, to find or... Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, I think so. It's just, it's an, it's an itch you had to scratch. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would probably just, you know, not like my job if I wasn't doing kind of new stuff all the time. Yeah, that's cool. All right. And uh, what would you consider your first success in data science? That's a good question. <laughs> um. It's funny because, I mean, the, the book about churn is really a book, you don't, you don't see it in the book, but it's really a book about mistakes because I had a lot of mistakes early on and I decided to write a book later on when I was like, wow, I've learned so much from all these mistakes. But so at what point would I call it a success? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the first times, well, so if we're talking data science, it's after my Wall Street phase. Okay. Um, and because that's, it's kind of semantics, but that's like quant work, right? You're a quant in, on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And then when I became more of like a standard data scientist, uh, I started working out on churn problems pretty early. Um, and for sure, my first approaches were not successes, but somewhere in between like the the third and the fifth uh, analysis of a company's churn, I, I guess it was kind of successful or it felt successful at the time. 
But even now looking back, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe we were doing it that way. I can't believe I thought that this would work. And, you know, so I don't even know like where it started becoming successful. Um, the subscription economy index at Zora has been a big success, but that's not even standard data science. Actually, that's a lot drawn on my, my Wall Street background, and it's kind of like Wall Street style analytics applied to subscription businesses and online companies. Hmm. Uh, but that's been a success, but again, a very non-standard kind of data science project. So I don't think I answered the question, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all good. Uh yeah, I, I think um it it sounds like the failures were actually successes in hindsight, but while going through that process it was not smelling like success. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean, now here I am. Now I wrote a book about all those failures. So, at what point <clears throat> at what point has life given you enough lemons to make lemonade, right? Yeah. True that. Yeah. You need not just one lemon, you need at least a dozen or something if you're yeah. getting lemonade out of it. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a cool way of looking at it. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I was looking through the report, the subscription index economy report, and uh, there were some things that I just, I, like I saw manufacturing, for example. Now, I don't know if this is like getting into the weeds too quick here, but I was just trying to figure out like how, how does manufacturing go into like a subscription is that like the razors uh, where you get like razors yeah. every month or something no, or? this is in our data it's mostly going to be uh companies where the company is a manufacturer uh but yeah it could be a subscription to something but you know what some of them are also like software used for manufacturing mm. so you know how um economic classifications go like if you make software, hey, for petroleum engineering, for example, yeah, is that, let's say you're a company that makes petroleum engineering software. Now, are you classified as a software company or an energy company? Yeah. And it's really the latter because economically, when the price of oil goes up, your software is going to do great, right? And when the price of oil tanks, which I think it kind of is at the moment. Yes, it did. <laughs> but anyway, that's going to be tough for people who make software for energy companies. Yeah. So what, what we have in our data is people, well, not entirely, but a bunch of them are going to be software companies for the manufacturing sector. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. And then... Yeah, we actually, I, yeah, it's not actually the IoT. We have a lot of manufacturers who make mobile devices, but then we classify them separately as IoT for that purpose. So, hmm. so I guess, yeah, the, the next question I have is, it's, it's almost like there's a little bit of, um, well, I might get smacked for saying this, but is it like subjective and how these things were uh, kind of categorized? Like would, uh, would somebody else... Do it's it not, a little differently? It's not me being subjective. You know, we get the categorizations from a vendor. Oh, okay. So someone, someone somewhere, you know, looked at what that company does and said, oh, they're manufacturing mm. you know, for, their, for their economic sector. Yeah, fair enough. So let me ask you this. What, was, what, what do you think is the most profound insight uh, that you gained after doing that, that study? Well, the subscription economy index, wow, what is the profound insight of it? It's that 
I mean, subscriptions really are taking off. You know, there's more and more companies going subscription, but you kind of have to dig a little beneath the surface to see that they don't all succeed. <laughs> it's like mm. in that study, it'll show you that the average growth rate of one of these companies is in the double digits, healthy double digits, maybe around 20%. But within that, once you scratch beneath the surface, there's a lot of flame outs that are just like going bust. And then there's these incredible home runs that have triple digit growth. Hmm. And it averages out to be a very healthy, you know, like 18, 20% growth rate. But there's so much variety in the subscription sector. Uh, yeah, you can't, it's not automatic success <laughs> just, you know, by selling a subscription. Yeah. One, I don't know if this is just my um, uh, ignorance showing here, but when I looked at that chart of subscription-based economy versus the S&P 500, I was like, holy shit, <laughs> like, that's crazy. It, like, what am, what am I not, is, is there, there's got to be more to the story there, or maybe you just shared it, but that's, I mean, well, it's just insane. Yeah, I mean, that's the power of double-digit growth rates. I mean, that's, that's why everyone wants a growth rate in the teens or 20s and not in the single digits because over a couple of years, it, you know, you compound the heck out of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it grows so much faster. Hmm. Uh, huh. And there's just a lot of new companies and new products in this space. Because in a way, I mean, pretty much all new technology is sold by subscription if it's for sale, right? On-premise software, pretty much gone. Um, all the companies that sell devices, they're trying to make, they'll, they'll, they're practically giving you the device and they, then they want recurring fees. Well, that's not really true for Apple. They still charge a lot for their phones, but they're trying to get more and more of their money from you, you know, on a recurring basis too. Hmm. Um, so it has all, all the newest product categories are in the subscription space is really the fact. I mean, like look at Zoom. You know, they're, they're one of Zora's great customers. I wouldn't say best because we have a lot of great customers, but Zoom <laughs> is a great customer for Zora. Yeah. Um, I think they're the only company whose stock price has gone up in the past month. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, they're in this really new category, right? So, mm -hmm. and, and we're lucky to be able to serve companies like that, honestly. Yeah. Um, so in a way, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm not, this isn't probably what Zora wants me to say, but I mean, it's not just the power of subscriptions. It's also that it's just the way the, mo the most cutting edge products are all sold. So we just, we just see a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. Um, alrighty. So what do you think, and there's a chance we might've already covered this, but I just want to just uh, hit it uh, right on the head here is, what is the biggest driver for growth in the subscription economy? And maybe we can funnel that into like the U S cause I know you kind of broke that down into. Oh God. I mean, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's such a broad question. Like the biggest, I mean, there's, well, I mean, it's kind of what, what, what I did, what we were just saying. I mean, that a lot of the, the, all the kind of latest product categories are being sold by subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, so more and more people are adopting subscription products because they're there. Um, you know, Disney Plus, Hulu. I mean, the, I mean, the streaming wars is the perfect example. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. <laughs> but in the business, we call it the streaming wars because it's like Disney versus Netflix versus Amazon versus Hulu 
versus the new uh, NBC Peacock streaming service is coming out soon. Hmm. And uh, what's and there's a new HBO uh, direct to consumer service, and they're all you know fighting it out, right? <laughs> to to basically tear apart the the money that the, the cable companies used to get. Um, so we call it the streaming wars. <laughs> Uh, and so where are we going with that? I mean, just, well, the point is there's more and more, right? Okay. Yeah. And even the internet has kind of gone past the, the ad supported phase. Um, and the most dynamic internet services, not all, but you know, many of them are now putting up a paywall and saying, no, the advertising is not enough. You, if you want our content, you know, sign up and it might only be five 99 or three 99 a month, but you know, Hmm. it's like the new model yeah they i've i've even seen that uh like the like wall street journal or like these other newspaper places you might get a paragraph or you might get nothing you might get a title i know i hate it when someone <laughs> shares an article and you yeah on it and you're like it's funny in zora because we're like God damn paywalls. Oh wait, we like paywalls because that's a we you know it's subscription, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. We always have a laugh. We're like, those stupid paywalls. Yeah, that's oh man. Uh yeah, I guess that question was a little broad. I didn't know if there was like some sort of uh trends that you notice, like just consumer, maybe that's just people want they want to have like no commitments where they buy something this month and then next month they yeah. They want no, that's true. And, and Zora did a survey. I wasn't actually that involved, you know, with the survey, mm-hmm. uh, but I know I, you know, I remember some of the results and it's just showing that, you know, around the world, people, especially younger people see ownership as less desirable and less prestigious in fact. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people see the value in getting the use of something without actually owning it, which I, I mean, I know it's just like a change in perception because, you know, at least with home ownership, you're like, or at least the traditional view is like, oh, it's better to own, right? But then on the other hand, then you have all the expenses, you know, of owning and Mm -hmm. especially if you look at assets like a car, right, where it depreciates so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this enter, enter the problem of churn, I guess, because somebody could be like, all right, I'll pay your stinking paywall. I want to watch this article or whatever, but I'm not paying another month or I'm only going to do the 15 day trial or something like that. So yeah, there's like some uh, psychology involved here with improving or reducing the churn, I guess is the target. Yeah. I mean, just churn is always going to be a given uh, because consumers have choices Mm -hmm. and we don't have, um, infinite budgets either. I mean, this is kind of a quick digression. I mean, some people talk about, oh, maybe they're, they call it subscription fatigue. Like are people just getting tired of so many subscriptions? And it's like, I I honestly don't answer a question like that with data. I just think about my own life and I'm like, I mean, am I tired of subscriptions? No, I'm not really tired of them. There's great stuff for sale on subscription, but do I have a limited budget and limited attention like for watching and doing stuff? Yeah, I definitely have a limited budget of attention and mm-hmm. a limited willingness to pay. I don't want to throw money away. So that just means naturally people are going to be choosy. And that's not the same thing as 
you know, being tired of subscriptions. It's just like you choose how to spend your money. And if you're not getting value from something, you cancel it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where churn comes in. People who don't get value aren't going to stay. Mm-hmm. Is, is part of the battling of churn trying to figure out what incentives people are really responding to or like how, how deep does the spider web go? It seems like you're dealing with, you know, human behavior, human psychology. Like how do you even really manipulate that or like get like consistency out of it? You know, I actually take a more kind of basic approach where, you know, the best way to not have a lot of churn is to have a great product. Mm. So really the book, you know, about fighting churn with data, it's not actually about tricks and gimmicks to get people to stay. It's about using the data uh, generated by people churning and renewing. Um, And it's actually like a kind of survey of your customers. Because normally, I mean, companies would find out what features or what content people like maybe by uh, surveying them or having a focus group or, you know, exit interviews when people uh, quit. But when you do that, you can only ever talk to a tiny percentage of customers and you have these biases because um, generally the people who love you or hate you are the most motivated to answer your survey (laughs) and you kind of miss the middle, right? Yeah. But what the book is really about is using the people, your customers vote with their feet, as the expression goes, they either stay or they go. And then you look at what they did what before they stayed or left and you use that to figure out what do people really value like what what are the best features what are the mediocre features are there even some things in your product that the more people use it you know the more likely they are to leave but even Hmm. that is actually a tricky question because if you look in your data and you see that for your say an online product or service and you see that there's some feature where the more people use it the more likely they are to churn, your first reaction might be, oh, that must be a bad feature. And when people use it, you know, they get mad. But on the other hand, I've definitely seen case studies where actually it's the best feature and it's the most valuable. But when people attain that value, they're often done with it. And the Hmm. fact, it's like if, let's say you're, let's say you were a, you know, uh, a streaming, one of these streaming services, just say hypothetically, you only had one good series on your service, then you would probably find that the more people watch that series, the more quickly they churn because they watch the whole thing and they're done. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, hmm. so it's really all about how do you use your data to see, you know, what, what the results are and then, you, you have to think about it too. And a lot of it's probably annoying if you read my books in a lot of places, I'm like, well, there's really no rule. You have to use your knowledge of the business. Like I probably use that phrase like 50 times. <laughs> like, hmm. It's not a ta- something that you can do um, without understanding uh, because like one big contrast I make early on in the book is, I mean, this is data science, right? So people think, oh, predictive predictive analytics or AI, right? We're going to predict who chur- who's going to churn. Mm-hmm. But this is going back to the mistakes I made. Early on, I realized that uh, prediction isn't that useful for churn because the people who are going to do something about it need to know the reasons. Um, and it, when they look at a customer, you can't just tell them, oh, this customer is at risk for churn. It's got to be, they're at risk for churn because 
they're not using the best product features or they're at risk for churn because they're on the premium plan. Like let's say you have an expensive plan and a cheap plan. A lot of places do, right? Maybe mm -hmm. someone's on the premium plan, but it's too much for them. You know, they're not really using it enough to justify that cost. So you should get them onto your basic plan, right? And that might be the solution for another customer. And then you might have another customer who's actually using the product wrong. And you can detect that in some, in the data too. So every customer who's going to cancel, there's going to be a different reason why they're not getting value. Well, I mean, not completely different. It's, you know, there's only so much... <laughs> so many different reasons you can have, it's really limited by your data. You know, you, you measure certain things in your data and you can find all the associations between those things and what makes people likely more or less to churn. Hmm. Um, but it all comes down to getting value. So one of the mottos in the book is that there's no silver bullets for churn in that you really have to give people more value. Like I, I don't think there are any gimmicks or things that you can do consistently. Um, even people often think that, oh, the way you fight churn is just give someone a discount. Um, and that was kind of based off the experiences some of us have had with the cable, t ser cable TV services, who when you call up to cancel, they usually try to make you an offer, right? Mm. But if a company does that, it means that they have a very high profit margin on you to begin with, or they wouldn't have the margin to cut you a discount as like a one-off. Hmm. And most companies that have tried using discounts to retain people, they find it's only temporary. You know, the person you give a discount to, eh, they might keep it for one month, but they're going to leave as soon as the discount expires. Um, so the right way to think about it is actually in that tiered pricing plan right? Instead of giving out discounts, people should have like a basic level, a standard level and a premier level, you know. Uh, but of course, that depends on the technology. You need, you need technology that will let you limit some features for the premier level, right? And, or somehow make a worse service for the basic level. So you mm. need the technology to enable it. But then having, they call it a good, better, best pricing plan, if you talk to pricing people. <laughs> But so having a good, better, best versions of your plan is actually the right solution, you know, rather than discounting. Mm. And then it's all about just getting people on the most appropriate plan for their level of use and recognize that if someone's not even using it enough to justify your basic plan, you know, let them go. I mean, let them go with your blessing, right? And maybe they'll come back when, you know, when they need it. Yeah. I guess maybe not everybody is your customer. Uh, that's yeah, or, no, am I wrong about that? I, no, that's part of it too. And yeah. you know, companies that push sales to people who it's not a good fit for, it doesn't end well. And we see that at Zora because we're you know we're a B two B enterprise software company, so our product is sold by subscription, and well, it lets other people manage their subscriptions. Mm -hmm. But you know, we have we and we we do our own churn analysis, and we talk to customers and you know when they're leaving and one of the definitely a, a constant theme is like the product didn't really meet their needs right and then you're like well how did we even end up selling it to them yeah. you know and it, we're in the business the business world so it means there's salespeople, and it probably means the salesperson maybe talked it up or you know i mean the salespeople are always looking to close a deal right right 
So the salespeople have an incentive to close deals, even if it's not an appropriate product for the customer. Hmm. But then it ends up in churn and it's like a black eye for the company. If that customer turns around and says, oh, Zora sold me this, but really, you know, I needed that, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have these conversations about, you know, if it's not right for the customer, don't sell it. But it's a hard message to get to your salespeople, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, it sounds like, like basically what I'm getting out of this, because I'm, uh, I'm not very, with oil and gas, like we don't, it's, it's a little, I'm sure. I think it fits with like the software that we, that we use, but in our day-to-day -day operations, like the actual operating of an oil and gas company, it's the, the whole concept is a little foreign to me. But uh, basically what I'm getting here is that if you're like a data person, you have like unlimited fun ahead of you. If you're, if you're helping somebody manage their churn, is, is that like a, <laughs> well, there's, I don't know about fun cause it's a lot of work and yeah. the data is usually messy. Um, and what you can do, what you can do with it is limited by the data that's collected. Mm, yeah. But if your company collects decent data around what your customers are doing, um, yeah, then it is a lot of fun and you, you see a lot of interesting patterns. Um, yeah, and definitely I've done, you know, um, dozens of those kinds of analyses and it, it's fun even for me having done it so much cause it's actually kind of different every time. Hmm. You know, because every pro there's no two products that are exactly the same, um, even if they are in the same space, you know? Yeah, uh, that's cool. So I was curious, um, why was grad school so pivotal for all your subsequent endeavors? Hmm. I guess I did say something along those lines. <laughs> it just, just, uh, yeah, the pre-interview question, I th it was something along the lines of like how to get profitable in six months and your question was, or the, the response was awesome because it was like, well, uh, I would basically go to grad school if I had lost all these things, like my, uh, all my skills, because that's where I got all my skills. Yeah. So I, was, I was like, man, I've never got that before. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I got a big kind of confidence boost out of my experience in grad school because mm -hmm. it was hard um for one thing <laughs> but uh you learn that you know you can pretty much go into any subject and study it until you know all about it and because i mean i was in an interesting graduate program it was kind of uh like an interdisciplinary neuroscience and ai program uh and this was actually before ai and neuroscience was cool <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I ended up doing a PhD studying something that I really didn't know much about before I started it. I mean, I had some basic idea. Mm -hmm. um, I had, it had to do with a lot of uh, electromagnetism in the brain. <laughs> and I had hmm. been an electrical engineer, but I didn't really know anything about the brain going into this. Wow. But you have that experience that if you read about something enough, you can pretty much learn everything about it. And you, you learn how to follow references. Like if you don't understand something that you're reading, you go to a reference and read that until you understand it and assemble that all into, you know, a knowledge of a new subject. Um, and I pretty much had to do the same thing again on wall street, you know, hmm. didn't, I went to work at a wall street company, not really knowing anything about finance. They hired people who didn't know anything. 
they hired people with PhDs who don't uh, in science who don't know anything about finance because they figure, oh well, if you got a PhD in science, we can teach you. Hmm. And they're right, you know. So so you get that from doing a PhD is like a skill in learning, which you don't really get from your undergraduate because in your PhD you have to acquire like a self-guided ability to learn because no one's going to tell you exactly what to read in your PhD or well, it depends maybe if your professor is really micromanaging you mm-hmm. but then you wouldn't get the full value so mm-hmm. anyway just having that experience I think really changed me uh, I mean aside from the skills it gave me the confidence to take on new areas um, so yeah it definitely made a big difference for me I don't know maybe not everyone has that good an experience in graduate school but I, I definitely did. So I would, I would recommend, you know, doing something like that if you feel so inclined. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll be opening up a can of worms on that here in a few. Um, so, but I did want to ask you this, how is quant life different than data science life? Well, geez, it's <laughs> definitely the kind of people are different. Okay. Um, Definitely on the, in the Wall Street world, you, I mean, people are more just like greedy for money. And in the technology world, people are striving kind of for fame and impact, you know, I mean, and money. But so it's kind of a different kind of ego. Hmm. Um, the pure money ego people and then like the, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the people who want to have money, but also like fame and social impact is more in technology. Hmm. Um, Definitely. If you have like stereotypes in your mind that like finance people tend to be more meticulous, um, even say anal retentive, then yeah, it's, it's a stereotype, but it's true. And your technology types are definitely going to be, you know, more laid back ish, not, they're not that the hard, the real people in like these Silicon Valley companies, they're not that laid back actually. I mean, hmm. they're pretty hard striving, but they affect a laid back, you know, lifestyle. Yeah. But Wall street, they're not even trying to pretend they have a laid back lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to look like they, they're really hardworking and stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that's so, and you, uh, you just had enough. And so you went off, into technology land or what was kind of your, it's, it seems like a big shift, but maybe they're, they really parallel each other. I don't know. It's not that big a shift because if you have the skills to be a wall street quant, you have the skills to be a data scientist. There's just Mm. a little bit more emphasis on machine learning in the data science world. And there's some emphasis on the particular financial techniques in the Wall Street world. Although I hear it's changing and they're using more and more machine learning on Wall Street. Hmm. But for me, the change, uh, I can't really explain it without bringing in the history and maybe dating myself a little bit. Um, but I joined you know, the Wall Street company where I was in uh, like the spring of 2007, which was you know, less than just about a year or something before the financial world started exploding. Mm-hmm trying to remember the exact dates but so when i when i joined finance finance in the early 2000s was seen as a very reputable endeavor because finance was booming and the economy was booming and everyone was like look finance is so great it's making the economy boom so there were a few years when 
finance really looked like a way where it was benefiting the world and everyone was making a lot of money, which sounds like a good time, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in 2008, that was proved to be kind of a lie. There was a bubble, it burst and, you know, a lot of wrongdoing was exposed and hey, then no one, <laughs> that, that image of finance is actually like a, a, a positive career, like for the world just went down the drain. Right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and also then the conditions that finance companies changed a lot after the bubble burst, but I had joined like right before the bubble <laughs> burst. Um, I didn't lose my job, fortunately. But at that point, you know, I was like kind of young and not very highly paid. And it was actually, they generally were cutting more highly paid people's jobs and hmm. giving more work to the, the less paid people who remained it was a common tactic back then. Hmm. Um, so I kept my job and stayed in finance for, you know, several more years, but it got to be less and less fun just because the business environment wasn't fun. You know, when companies are under pressure because of their profit margins, the message came down from the top that every customer was so important. You have to do everything for every customer, everything they want, right? Cause we mm -hmm. want to keep our customers thinking about churn back then. But, <laughs> but then at the same time, the message was we have a hiring freeze. We can't hire anyone new. Our margin is down. You know, our stock price is tanking. So you should do more to make the companies, to make the customers happy. Um, but we're not going to hire anyone else to, into your team. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, everyone, and you know, you can do that for a year, maybe two, but eventually like the, the, the cost cutting, you know, stressed out environment just took a toll and it was like, Hey, this isn't yeah. so much fun. And at the time uh, I was aware there was another bubble inflating <laughs> <laughs> and that was the, you know, the, the recent Silicon Valley bubble. And I don't know, I would even say maybe there's a data science bubble going on so when you're in when you have your career in a deflated bubble and you're looking out and like hey there's a bubble that's still on the rise it's kind of like a no-brainer like let's, yeah let's go, let's go to the place where you know companies are growing fast and you know there's a lot of investment and excitement and let's get out of the place where there's a lot of pain and everyone's looking back to the good old days you know before the crash so hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good food for thought uh, in this environment too. So <laughs> I know. I mean, let's see here. Like Wall Street even had recovered some of its mojo the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, what you might you might have uh, answered this a, a little bit. I just wanted to make sure I got. I got a grip on this. What is your algorithm for master, mastering almost any technical subject? <laughs> An algorithm for mastering yeah. any technical subject? Yeah. Is it just reading, uh, like just reading until you understand? Uh, yeah. I mean, I kind of mentioned it before. You, you have to follow up your references mm -hmm. um, and be able to distinguish, you know, a good reference from a bad reference. Uh, but certainly in academic papers, they always give references. So that's kind of the model is that you have it. Your professor says, read this paper and you're like, okay. And then you're like, what the, what does this all mean? Yeah. But, you know, throughout the entire paper, there's all these references. And at the end of every academic paper, there's usually dozens of other papers that they cite. Mm. And you just go to the first thing that you don't understand. Look at the references that come after it. 
you have to look at them. You kind of have to size up your references too. It's easier with online tools because you can see how many people cite different subjects. So you want to find like the most cited paper in the subject that you don't understand hmm. and read that, try reading that one. And if you don't understand that, then it's like, keep, it's like recur, it's like recursion, you know, for every subject you don't understand in that paper, find the references they cite, figure out which one is the most important or most influential and read that one until you, you know, you, until you find something you understand. Yeah. Um, wow. and I've never had it. I mean, I had enough education in computer science and the subjects that I work on that that's never not worked for me. But mm -hmm. I imagine if you wanted me to just like, you know, read a paper on like COVID-19 or something, it would, it, it wouldn't work because I don't have the, you know, the background. Eventually mm -hmm. the reference I'd have to read would be like the, the biology 101 textbook. Yeah. You know, I don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It makes, it makes sense. The domain expertise is like, uh, you, you, you don't want to, you don't want to underrate that. That seems super critical. Yeah, you need enough of a background in the area for it to work. Mm -hmm. you know? But for anyone who's like listening to this podcast and is, you know, a computer science person or programmer, you can probably do that trick for almost any subject in computer science or AI, you know, that you don't understand. You just have to, you have to spend the time on reading the references. Mm -hmm. The course was easy in graduate school when you basically had nothing to do, but, you know, read all those papers. Well, I mean, you also had to do your own research, but it was assumed that, you know, reading all these papers was a big part of it. It's yeah. harder in the professional world where you might only have like a couple of hours a day, if that, to study something. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good information. Thanks for sharing that. Um, let's see. What are the characteristics of an effective quant? An effective quant? Mm-hmm. Oh God. I mean, it's generally, I mean, you need, there's the scientist characteristics. It's really, and it's the same for a data scientist and a quant. Okay. I would say, um, you partly have, you know, technical skills in the specific subject that you're working on. Um, but you also need the experimental attitude that comes with being a scientist. I guess that's tying back into the, oh, what did I get out of graduate school? But you, you really need to be a critical thinker in how you use your data and be, it's, it's, you're really like a hypothesis testing machine. But for both quants and data scientists, you test more hypotheses than most people realize because anything with data, you start out with a hypothesis that my data is not full of shit. Right. And you have to prove that hypothesis. You cannot assume that it's true <laughs> unless you proved it. Yeah. And it's the, and the attitude of whole that helps both a quant. And I think a good data scientist is always reserve judgment and always test everything and look mm. for multiple ways, you know, to test things. Um, there's a great quant trick, not great, but it, I mean, it's not really a trick. It really comes from physics, where if you have a hard calculation, you do it twice. Once in your programming language where you're trying, to, you really want to implement it, but then you make a reference implementation and it could be in Microsoft Excel. What you want to do is the exact same calculation two different ways, completely separate implementations. And it's like a, it's like a system check, right? Mm. Um, 
it would be hard to make exactly the same bug in two entirely different programming paradigms like that. So that's a great trick for both, you know, quants and data scientists. Um, and it's again, it's like that mindset that like, don't believe it until you've tested it and like keep thinking up more different ways to test it and make it break. Hmm. I love it. <laughs> uh, alrighty. So what are the principles behind fighting churn with data? Like if you had to distill that, uh, the book down, or if there was kind of more outside of the book, how would you distill those principles? Uh, distilling it down. It's all about what I call great customer metrics or just customer metrics. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and that is, we talked about having data that you use to measure your customers. So what you're generally people are tracking their customers in some way around the product. And I don't mean like, I want to distinguish this from like stalking people on the internet, like <laughs> on using other products. What I'm always talking yeah. about is like, if it's your product, you know, you keep track of who logs in, right? And you keep, and hopefully you're keeping track of what videos they watch or what documents they edit. And that's your own system plumbing data. Like that is the essential data of your system. And you should be tracking it. And there's nothing creepy about watching what people do on your own product. Because how else are you going to make the product better? Mm -hmm. So the book is about taking the data that you that you collect about your customers and turning it into really useful metrics for the 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 people who are going to try to engage the customers and make them not churn. And like I mentioned, you know, doing AI and predicting churn doesn't really help those people. So what you do is you make the make customer metrics and I, you know, customer metrics are like, oh, videos streamed per month or the average percent of your videos that you complete. Or, you know, you can imagine all kinds of customer. It's like, what do you think Amazon or, you know, Netflix is measuring about you? Mm -hmm. How much do you watch from each category or, you know, and in any, so you're, so you're going to have those metrics. And the really great thing is you don't need a churn prediction model because every customer metric will predict churn for you um, if you create it correctly. And that, you know, that's like what the book is about. So you end up making a concise set of customer metrics um, where every one of them predicts churn in a way that your business people can understand. And you hmm. can set target levels for every metric. Like, okay, this is what a healthy customer looks like. And so that's kind of it in a nutshell. Unfortunately, it takes several chapters and a lot of SQL and Python, you know, to do, to do that correctly. Yeah. And you can't really do it in a spreadsheet. People have asked me that. I mean, I don't know. I believe in the power of spreadsheets and I use spreadsheets a lot, but not for this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I find, at least for myself, when I'm diving into a new subject, just having like the, the principles at hand, even though like there might be like, you know, multiple hundreds of pages to back it up, like <laughs> just something to like, you know, give me a, like boundaries that I'm operating in. So I think that's helpful what, what you shared there. Yeah, all all customer metrics. Excellent. And then how do you use them and all is the there, clever things you can do to make them even more informative? Hmm. Do you do you also dive into like the intuition that you might need to develop on on like what is a good metric? Is that mm -hmm. that's all part of the Okay, cool. Yeah, and it, it, that's a it's a good question and it, it's what's a good metric differs from every 
from product to product. But there's a, the bottom line is easy to explain is that the metric should be as close as possible to the value that the customer is creating or receiving. Hmm. Um, so it's like, okay, so what is the value? I mean, sometimes the value is subjective. In fact, very often it's subjective and you can't measure it directly. So if it were a streaming video service, again, uh, the value is your enjoyment, right? So how, they can't mm -hmm. actually measure that, right? But then you say, what events can they measure that are close to that value? And it's going to be things like watching a video to the end rather than can't, quitting it after 10 minutes mm -hmm. or even giving, if they have like a thumbs up, you know, liking or sharing system, then that's also great of, uh, uh, metrics for people really receiving value. Yeah. On the other hand, to make it even more concrete in the business world, sometimes you really can measure the value that um, <clears throat> a customer receives. So for example, Zora is we, one of the things we do is we're a billing system. So we actually measure how much money our customers make using our product. And do you think that's a good predictor for churn? <laughs> like, heck yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, people use Zora to run their businesses and they're trying to make money. So mm -hmm. we see them making, I mean, no predictor of churn is perfect. You always have some people who are getting a great value and still churn. And you have other people who are getting a terrible value. And for some reason they don't churn. So there's always randomness in it. Mm. But anyway, for a product like Zorro and a lot of business to business products, you can actually make metrics which do a much closer job of literally measuring the value the customer is receiving or creating. And then those are really great for churn. And you don't have that subjective <laughs> kind of problem like on the streaming service. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, I was curious, what can an organization do that solves like 80% of their challenge on battling churn? Uh, make the great customer metrics okay and get and get them in the hands of the people who are going to make it a better product or I mean there's other ways to fight churn too I mean for example emails about the product or, or whatever communication channel you have available um, that so information to the customers that tells them how to use the product or encourages them to use it more and better. That's like another tactic, but there the trick is to make it, you know, really valuable. Uh, but anyway, the, the theme that goes through all of those is having the great customer metrics and getting them into the hands of the people who are actually trying to do, to make a better product, to engage with customers. Or also we talked about pricing the people who are coming up with the pricing plan, you know, need to be looking at those metrics as well. Hmm. Excellent. And just to kind of invert the question a little bit, uh, what aspects of fighting churn are really difficult and that should kind of be avoided when you're starting out on this endeavor of, of uh, reducing it? That's a good question. What is particularly difficult? I don't know. I mean, the book in the book, I kind of talk about basic and advanced, but in the customer metric area, you start out with basic and you go to advanced. But you know, what I think should be avoided actually is going straight to machine learning and AI. Because um, in, in the book, I do cover, you know, prediction and AI. And those are chapters like eight and nine out of 10, right? Mm. But so those are things that you should do later. If you've already, if you've already got great customer metrics, 
and you want to take it to the next level, then you might want to use AI for some use cases. But the mistake that most people are likely to make because it's the, co the common thing in data science is they're going to go to the AI first. Mm -hmm. right? And really you should go to it, not last, but only in particular use cases where you really need it. And only after you have the great customer metrics for all your, for your business people to look at. Excellent. Yeah. I, I feel like that's everything that you've shared around that uh, is super empowering. I mean, it, even if you made that mistake, that could save you a lot of time. It sounds like if you're like, you know, pissing away all this time, like making models, you're like, those are the wrong metrics to be running your models on. So cool. Yeah, no, it's true. Like once also like once the you've made the, the customer metrics and you have the business buy-in, which helps confirm the hypotheses around the metrics, you usually get a great predictive model too. Hmm. Um, Cause the metrics, like I said, the well-designed metrics, every one of them predicts churn on its own. And then when you put them all together in a good AI system, that's how you get really great results. Hmm. Excellent. That's really cool. Um, regarding, uh, there, there was some, I, I had asked you in the pre-interview about your ambitions, uh, three to five years out. And, uh, based on that response, I was curious, what is the big domino that your data science team could knock over that would massively contribute to Zora's path to billion dollar valuation? Oh, I don't know. Is there one big domino? Um, I mean, we're already, yeah, contributing. We just have to scale it up, I think. I mean, we, we work in two areas, one of which is the, um, the subscription economy research. And yeah, that's definitely a thriving area for us. Um, it has, the cus our customers love it. You know, it's really helping our customers improve their businesses. And that's what we want is for our customers to be successful. Mm -hmm. And the other area we're working on is actually doing some, some AI for software features. And that's one where we're actually just in the deployment of the first feature that the customers will, act, will eventually see. Um, and yeah, I don't, it's funny because I, I, I should like s sell it more, but I know that's not the big domino that's going to like, you know, take Zora to the next level. Because I mean, Zora has so many things going on. You know, and we're not, uh, you know, the features that we're going to add that use AI are definitely going to be helpful um, in some scenarios for our customers. But Zora does so many things that for their customers that it, it would be, I don't know, a little bit of overselling it to say that, oh, yeah, this is really going to, I mean, everyone likes to overhype AI. I don't know if you've noticed that I like to underhype AI because <laughs> <laughs> I think AI is overhyped. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. So we're definitely already doing it. We just need to scale it up. Excellent. Cool stuff. And, uh, what attributes do your top data science employees exemplify? Hmm. <clears throat> That's a good question. Well, Maybe like I was saying before about that attitude of not trusting anything in your data or your model, like, yeah, just really checking everything because it's so easy to have garbage in, garbage out, or, or mm. some you know, mistake in your process that changes the results in a way. So definitely an attitude of skepticism 
and I, I call, said it's like hypothesis testing, but everything is, you know, everywhere you see these hypotheses that you're not really sure, is the data good, is the data bad? Is it predicting right? Is it pre I mean, yeah, yeah, so you kind of just have that, have to have that. And there's also, you know, the other important quality is of course, diligence. And that really also separates successful quants and data scientists from unsuccessful. I actually have this, a line that I always use with my interns. It's actually become kind of a joke in our group. But I always say, because what happens in any of these projects is you make a little mistake somewhere in the process and you have to run the whole thing over again. Mm -hmm. And what I say is if you don't like running a long, complicated process again and again and again, you know, making little changes each time, then it's just not the career for you. Mm -hmm. Because that's what you have to do. You have to get, you have to keep doing it until you get it right. And if there's one mistake or one thing you want to change anywhere in your analytic pipeline, you're going to have to run the whole thing again. So just get used to it and don't, don't get frustrated. If that frustrates you, as I know it does some people, then it's just not the career for you. Cause that's been my life since I went to graduate school, like take a complicated software program, run it again and again and again, finding little bugs, changing the inputs, checking the outputs, and you just, <laughs> yeah, if you don't, if you can't handle that, then it's just not the career for you. Yeah, I think that's some powerful insight. I mean, somebody that's kind of new to the game and they just see like the sexy data scientist thing, but this is what you're signing up for, folks. <laughs> yeah, it's like a lot of repetitive stuff. You know, mm -hmm. you find one little thing that's wrong and it, it, you don't really see it in your coursework because there you usually get these data sets just kind of dropped in your lap and they say, okay, run the algorithm. <clears throat> and because the data set was kind of prepared to demonstrate that algorithm, it pretty much works on the first shot and you get some result and you feel like you learned something. Mm. But in reality, it just doesn't go that way, you know. Spend, yeah. I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard how it, we all spend all this time creating, you know, data sets and cleaning data. And it's like 80% or something insane like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just, I don't, also, personally, I don't have as much of a problem with that as a lot of people. Like, a lot of people see that as, like, a really bad thing. But I kind of see it as the nature of the work, as I just said. And, I mean, I also have the reference from my graduate school experience where I actually worked around physical scientists, you know, and physical scientists in like biology and chemistry, you know, they have what you call a rig, like your experimental rig, right? And it can involve, like if you're a chemist, it's gonna be like a hood over some chemicals and some process where you get, you run your chemicals through and then they make something and then bake it in the oven for five hours. I literally, I, I had a friend who made solar cells and he was like, he always, hmm. always told us about how we put all these chemicals together and then had to bake it and then do this other stuff. Um, and so we had a long process on the rig. And for sure in neuroscience, the rig is for an animal experiment will be some way to watch an animal do a task, maybe with an MRI around their head or something. So the thing in the, my point in the physical science is you spend most of your time working on your rig, not doing experiments. Hmm. Right? Like, what percent of the time are you actually doing your experiment? Maybe 10%. What percent of the time are you making your rig to do the experiment? That's most of your time right there is constructing and maintaining the experimental apparatus that you're going to use. And mm -hmm. that's natural. I mean, how else could it be? Right? Yeah, yeah um, it makes and sense. And then in the data science world, all that time cleaning and preparing the data, that's kind of like your rig for the experiment. 
And so it just makes sense. Well, that's where most of your work goes. And when you finally get all those pieces together and you actually analyze the data, okay, that's your experiment, right? But sure, it's just like in the physical sciences, your actual experiment is only gonna be like 10% of the time. Analyzing the results is gonna be 10% of the time. And setting up the experiment, yeah, it's 80% of the time. I mean, that's how science works. Hmm, that's. You know, if it, if it, Oh, go go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> no, it may, it makes sense. I was I was kind of curious while you were saying that. Um, was there some sort of major disconnect between the the type of data science that you were doing, like in academia versus data science in the real world? Because what you're talking about right now sounds like there's no disconnect. Uh, like you're signing up for preparing your rig. Either way you look at it. Well. I mean, definitely what I did in graduate school was different because it really was physical science. Um, and it, it was actually physics. <laughs> like we mm. were basically do measure, making measurements of animals and then using a, a model from a, a computer model based on physics to kind of reproduce the experiment. Mm. So it was very data science where in data science, you're just looking for correlations between variables without really having an underlying model. Um, but Nothing changed in, well, the thing, def, well, to answer your question more, just in graduate school, I didn't really know it yet. <laughs> like, like, I had to, in my first couple of years in graduate school is when I learned what I had signed up for. I mean, I told you how I went <laughs> to graduate school because I just felt like in software engineering, there's, you know, kind of a repetitiveness to most of the problems. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted the change in the variety, but yeah, I definitely didn't realize how much drudgery there was in pursuing that yeah <laughs> until i had done it for a couple of years and i realized like oh okay this is going to be the rest of my life <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's good the sooner i guess we kind of figure that out and uh the better the better off <laughs> yeah i don't know it's like yeah it makes a lot of sense so uh where did ai hype go wrong in your opinion Ooh, i don't know Definitely there's a ma- smarter people than me have <clears throat> made this point. So I'm just kind of paraphrasing things that partly that I've read. Um, but there's a real problem with just raising capital where once AI became trendy for getting VC investment, everything had to be AI. And so then things that five years ago, we wouldn't have called it AI now have to be called AI. Hmm. And there has to be like a machine learning or AI angle to everything. For the past couple of years, it's kind of felt that way. Um, and so it's, it becomes like a hype cycle. It's like a, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like the, the cycle where every once more and more things are saying they're AI, then you have to like <laughs> one up them and say how your thing is <laughs> even more AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of things that five years ago, we would just would have said, oh, yeah, it's smart software. You know, it's a clever analytical process or something. Now it's like got to be <laughs> AI. Fair enough. And w- I've done that, too. You know, it's like, oh, we do some analysis and, you know, we tell people, oh, yeah, it's an AI. And it's like, well, actually, it was a regression. But we're just telling you it's AI because we know y'all. <laughs> y'all it's more sexy. Yeah, that's how it's that's how it's got to be, I guess. There's I mean there was also I think somehow even within the community, I think it's not only that, it's also that people 
I think a lot of people maybe five years ago were naively optimistic. Mm. I don't know what happened, but somehow word got out, I think that, you know, like Google and Facebook had done a few things with AI and everyone heard that, you know, image recognition had gotten a lot better, right? I don't know if you heard that. I mean, you know, there was some point when, oh, deep learning made it, it was like a breakthrough in the ability to recognize images for, you know, animals or cars or whatever, you know, you, they look, you look for an image. Mm -hmm. And somehow people took that to thinking to, took that to mean that in a few years, we're going to have self-driving cars, which was kind of what everyone was saying back in like 2015 and 2016. Right. But I was definitely one of those people back in 2015 who was like, no way. Just because you can tell a picture's got a cat in it does not mean that you can drive a car anytime soon. Mm. Um, and so for some, I don't know how it happened, but for s somehow the idea got out that because they could now recognize images and recognize handwriting, um, that suddenly really, really hard problems would be solved soon. But there was never really any evidence that, you know, self-driving cars were just around the corner. But hmm. somehow there became a bandwagon effect where everyone extrapolated, okay, we've had this breakthrough in deep learning to recognize images and handwriting and audio, but they somehow thought that meant that like more general purpose cognition was going to be produced soon. Mm -hmm. And the last five years have shown that that's not the case. Like everyone who a few years ago said we would have self-driving cars in 2020 has like completely wheeled it back and said, oh, we meant 2025 or 2030, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I it's, don't know how it happens. So, yeah. Something, I, I know it's, it definitely got a little more buzzy, um, but what level of machine learning mastery can a non-grad student realistically ascend to, do you think? Um, well, you can, you, well, you'll never have the mastery of like making a new machine learning algorithm, right? <laughs> but mm -hmm. most people don't do that. And that's not really a practical skill since there's already great algorithms out there. Mm. Um, but I mean, the most important level of mastery, I feel like, is to have a problem that you want to work on and really understand the data and, you know, use the, the machine learning model appropriately to get state-of-the-art results. Um, and so much of getting state-of-the-art results has to do with how you prepare the data. And that is... Absolutely. In fact, people who like go to graduate school and work on algorithms often don't know what to do with a real problem, right? Because when you have a real machine learning problem, again, remember 80% of your time is preparing the data. That's where the magic is for mm -hmm. most machine learning problems. It's in the data preparation. And that is definitely something that, I mean, well, not, I wouldn't say anyone can do it, right? Okay. Uh, anyone who can program and has those qualities I mentioned of just like skepticism and checking your results can, can do that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, what is preventing us from really knowing how organic brains work? God, I was just reading something about like a, a, a article 
there's so many great articles about this. And I mean, the fundamental thing is that people don't, well, they don't know how organic brains work because they're really complicated. Yeah. And it's really hard to measure all but a tiny fraction of what's going on in them. Um, I mean, there's so many barriers to understanding. I don't even know where to start. Um, I don't know how I would answer that question. I, I figured I'd throw it out there. Yeah, I mean, definitely if, it, you know, don't let anyone poke and prod your brain. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, because, you know, the, the implements that we have to poke and prod brains are like, you know, big, hard metal and plastic objects which are inserted into this soft squishy goo mm -hmm. right <laughs> and that's not something you want to have it's very have. evasive it sounds like yeah no i mean it's damaging is what it yeah. is um, and they they do research on minimizing that damage too but it's still you know the materials that we have to work with are all these hard things like you know like i said made out of metal or plastic yeah um, but the stuff in your brain is really this gooey fragile i mean it's not super fragile it's very stretchy it can stretch quite a bit but you know <laughs> but it's very soft and and the components are very fine there's no yeah. nanotechnology which lets you do that but i mean there's also no theory i mean you know honestly i think maybe this is a more direct answer to your question of what are the barriers or something like that everyone's focusing on complicated brains like humans and monkeys because it's easier to get research funding in mammals. That's like another long story. And it okay. also sounds cooler. It's easier <laughs> to sell your, it's easier to get quoted in the newspaper if you work on mammals. But mm. um, we don't even understand how simple brains work. Like if you take the brain of like the, the most simple organisms that have brains, right? Okay. We don't know how those work. But most of the research funding goes to doing things with much more complicated organisms. Hmm. So that might be kind of like a bias that's preventing us from advancing. I mean, I don't know. I'm not like in the field anymore. So yeah, well, the, it just it's certainly thought provoking. So thank you for sharing that. Um, what is your strategy when feature engineering a data set that you're not intimately familiar with? Or is that, you know, like a thing that you shouldn't do, I guess? No, no, it definitely is. I mean, it's part of your job. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not the first person to observe that actually getting domain knowledge isn't that hard. Okay. I mean, everyone makes a big deal that, oh, yeah, you need domain knowledge. And then some people in reaction to that say domain knowledge is overhyped, right? Hmm. I say domain knowledge is not overhyped, but it's true that it's not that hard to acquire it. You know, I mean, you sit down with people and I mean, definitely the most important thing is to talk to the people in the business. And I yeah. take, you know, very seriously the beliefs, the prior beliefs of people who already work in the business. Like if someone in a company says, oh, we think this is the most important, you know, metric for, you know, customer engagement, they're usually right, you know, because mm -hmm. they are the ones who are watching the customers, even if they don't have like a data science degree, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, that makes... Definitely talk to the business re and do your background reading. Um, so it's like, don't underestimate do domain knowledge, but also don't be afraid of it. It's not really that hard to, I mean, I don't know. Well, you're in petroleum engineering. <laughs> I mean, how hard do you think it would be for a non-petroleum engineer like to work on, on a data set? 
Like, I, I mean, th- they probably couldn't do it as good as you could. I, I mean, it, when it comes to the financial stuff, I think there's probably a lot of parallels. Like if you're, if you're familiar with like um, just typical financial lingo, I guess, like we're, we're powered by like half accountants there. There might be some nuances in how they do their accounting. And that's where maybe your, your brain might get, uh, you know, just scrambled a little bit with that oil and gas accounting. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's doable. I think you could pick it up for sure. So what you're saying is making a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, you just have to put the time in. I mean, I definitely would agree that you shouldn't just work on a machine learning or data science project without doing your homework. Yeah. Um, Cause that's the way that you can really look out for bad data. You know, you need a little bit of knowledge of what the numbers are supposed to look like so that when you see one that's garbage, you're like, like, Hey, how can, how can that be negative? <laughs> right? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of, let me, let me follow this question up. Cause I've noticed in a lot of these data science challenges, sometimes they'll, it'll be like really sensitive data that they'll obfuscate. So at that point you have no intuition with what's going on. So what is, what is your opinion on, uh, or opinion or strategy with, uh, you know, working with a data set like that and trying to get insights out of it? I don't know. I've never done it. That's, Honestly, mm-hmm. I've, I've never done actually, uh, like a data science challenge or something. Okay. And I honestly can't imagine, I mean, if you really don't know what it is, well then basically, I mean, you can't do any feature engineering. Right. You don't know what they mean. Yeah, that's, but I, it, it cropped up recently. Um, I think there was like some sort of credit card fraud thing and they don't really tell you what you're looking at and you're trying to predict fraudulent transactions and you're just like, what? How does this See, honestly, work? I would say that actually makes, it makes no sense because yeah. like I said, most of the, the best predictions depend on making the best data set. Yeah. And usually, yeah, and you need to do your algorithmic work correctly but so much about the success of a prediction project is determined when you decide what goes into the data set. And what's well, also like what you have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, I'm glad you, you uh, answered the question the way that you did. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm basically calling BS on, on yeah. those, like, like, how do you even compete? I don't get it. I think any data science <laughs> thing where you just get your features given to you is kind of BS because yeah. the real world is mostly about putting together the feature set from hmm. disparate data sets. You know, you have to combine different things often, you know, merging data sets and doing like fixing key mappings that don't, <laughs> that don't map and like, yeah, <laughs> that's like the real world of data science. And like, if someone just gives you your data in a table and is like, here, it's done. Like that just doesn't happen. It's yeah. like, it never happens that way. Yeah. That's, that's excellent insight. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, what mindset, uh, or what is the mindset that has served you well while steadily building your success? And this kind of goes back to the 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 quantum leap uh question that i had for oh, you yeah, you like, asked, what has been led to a quantum leap in my success and i was like nothing <laughs> yeah what is the the mindset i guess that's kind of served you along the way because it's been like a slow and steady building of your 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, just pursuing problems that are interesting mm-hmm. to me, you know, so then I have the passion to actually learn the background and, you know, put up with all those problems of, you know, you have to study and learn about it and then you have to do this repetitive process. So if it weren't something that really I had interest and passion for, I guess it just wouldn't have worked. So, yeah, Excellent. I get, it's kind of romantic advice though. It's like, what do you do if you don't have the opportunity to pursue something that you're really interested in? Because that was actually me for a while on, on after, like the second half of my wall street career was kind of like biding my time looking for something that I did want to do, but hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, for someone that is considering grad school, what are some suggestions that you can offer regarding like selection of programs? And, and maybe you've already answered this with the passion uh, question. Well, I don't know. Yeah, selecting a program. I mean, you have to do your research and you have to get accepted. <laughs> but I mean, definitely a PhD, like in science, you know, you shouldn't be paying for it. You should be paid. Mm-hmm. So you definitely need, and you need to check what their funding mechanism is. Um, Cause in my grad school, they had like some funding to get people through the first year, but then you're supposed to get attached to a project that has a, you know, a grant. So you have to find out all those details to make sure that you're not suddenly without support. Hmm. Um, but that's not really the answer. I think that we're looking for. I mean, yeah, you, de- you definitely has to be something you're interested in and you have enough background for, but I do, I did get, have the opportunity to do a PhD in a field of science that I didn't have a great background in before going, um, which is fortunate if you can find it. Hmm. Uh, you had mentioned something earlier about like, you didn't understand what you got yourself into until like halfway through it type thing. Is there is there any way you could have like accelerated that understanding uh, or is it just kind of like the nature of the beast? Like you don't really know until you're kind of half knee deep or waist deep in these things. I don't know. Someone could have told me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think most people don't realize what research is like until you do it. But I mean, we could, people can tell you, but then you have to listen too. I mean, it's like right, I said, the yeah. same thing in the physical sciences where you have like some complicated rig and you spend most of your time, you know, preparing this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know. How do you know what that's like until you do it as an undergraduate? It's pretty hard to get that experience unless you're fortunate enough to get an internship or a research opportunity, which you know not everyone has access to. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, well, let me ask you this. What is your goal setting algorithm? Hmm. I don't know if I have one, but I, I do have like, you know, kind of a background process, which is just kind of like thinking about what's interesting, like both in my work and outside work, like, mm-hmm. you know, within work, within the work world that, you know, I know there are different problems going on in the company. So kind of like always thinking, oh, that's interesting. How could what I do apply to that? Mm-hmm. Then, Se- seeking the value to kind of back up going in that direction or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's hard to put your finger on. I mean, personally, I'm very, uh, what's the word? I'm very like gut feeling driven. Mm-hmm. Like I just kind of like, 
get a sense like, oh yeah, that would be really cool. You know, it's just kind of like the gee whiz, like a gee whiz feeling like, wow, that would be really cool if we could do that. Of course, you don't know if you can do it. So you have to combine that with like a sense of, okay, how likely is it that it'll actually work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what is the prerequisite knowledge you recommend for leveraging the power of Presto database? Presto. Hmm. No, I should qualify. I'm not a Presto expert. I'm a Presto user. Okay. So basically, you know, I know, I know SQL <laughs> and I know my way around AWS. <laughs> so th those are my qualifications. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, Presto, it's a big subject because I mean, you can use Presto as a managed service, you know, which as I just kind of implied, that's how I've been using it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not on the team of people that figures out, you know, how to get the data to <laughs> all in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's a, you know, it's a whole nother thing, but it's like many things. It's like, what do you need to know to be a DBA just in general? Do you need to know how the database really works inside? No. Do you need to know how to interact with it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and Presto, there's the whole, you know, with distributed databases, there's a whole other level of like, oh, like the sharding and the, I don't even know all the buzzwords. Yeah. Like the concurrency and all those other things you have to worry about, which is like a whole, and it's really like a DevOps skill, tech ops to keep the thing running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just looking at the sales page, because I'd never heard of that technology before. Something like uh, Facebook is querying like 300 petabytes of data or something like that. It's like insane. Yeah, well, it's a, so it's a distributed query engine um, or, and, you, and you query it just like with SQL. So as a user, you're just like, hey, I can write SQL. I mean, it's kind of like just the advancement uh, I guess that we've had in technology, uh, I'm trying to think how long, I mean, does anyone, I guess a lot of people still use Hadoop, right? But it used to be that if you wanted to query a lot of data, you had to use like the Hadoop technology and then you had to structure your, you know, everything you did in like these MapReduce functions, which I honestly never really worked with it because it just wasn't a thing at the companies where I, I was. But now the technology has advanced enough that you can work on big data and just do it in SQL. <laughs> which, which is awesome. I mean, that's, that's been around since the seventies. So yeah, it, it democratizes a really powerful yeah. technology. Yeah, absolutely. And the services around Presto also are generally offered in like a pay as you go kind of way. So you literally pay for the queries, <laughs> you know, cause the, the storage of the data is, is not that expensive. You, you're, you're really just paying for your processing time. Hmm. Yeah, um, that's so amazing. Very economical for, relatively economical for, you know, any company to do, you know, structured queries on big data. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm going to be digging into that. Um, let's see here. What types of problems do predictive models tend to shine the brightest? Because I know you had mentioned that they're not, they shouldn't be applied to, to every problem. Well, for sure, if you can <clears throat> make um, a, a decision based on your prediction and you can monetize that decision easily, then that's great for, for AI. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, you know, something like serving up better ads or I don't know. So it, it's definitely good when, yeah, when there's a clear cut decision you can make and it's clear how to monetize that decision. And hmm. AI is your friend. Uh, the churn case breaks down because there's not a clear cut decision. Um, you know, most AI works by yes, no prediction, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I guess that's like a stock. A stock is the best example. If you could have an AI that would predict stocks, um, then it would be great because all you need is buy or sell and it's easy to monetize the decision, right? You make money by buying and selling. The problem, of course, is that you generally can't predict stocks with AI. Uh, or if you do, it's only in high-frequency trading, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of like has its own limitations. But so, yeah. Hmm. All righty. And uh, what – so these are just kind of like uh, closing questions, I guess, uh, kind of winding it down here. Uh, but you had mentioned that naps are like a non-negotiable <laughs> – <laughs> and I was, I was curious, so uh, what part of the day do, do you like budget that time for a nap? Uh, usually in like the lunchtime. Cause I, I mean, I'm a power napper for me, like literally like one minute of sleep will just make a big difference in the, 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 my ability to think in the afternoon. I don't know how it works that such so little sleep can make a difference, but it does for me. Power napping. Oh, so I awesome. usually just squeeze a power nap into the lunch time when, you know, no one's really paying attention. <laughs> Excellent. Although it's yeah. kind of cultural, you know, because I hear in China, it's acceptable for people just to like put their head down on their desk and just be like, hey, I'm taking a nap. And everyone's cool with that. Huh. But in the US, it would look kind of weird. Yeah, I, I feel like I'd get chewed on if I if I pulled that uh, too often. <laughs> That's cool though. Well, wait, can I ask you something actually? Yeah. Where does the Python come in? What do you, what do you mean? Well, I, because the, you know, the podcast was called profitable Python. I was wondering if we were going to talk about Python at all. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's a great question. Um, I guess the, I mean, we could interject it at any time. Uh, I, I guess I kind of assumed like a lot of the data science type stuff is like, Unless you're, I guess you could be using R, but the I use both. I mean, I, I go both okay. ways. But in the in the book, it's all Python, right? That's okay, kind of the standard. Yeah, so that's you just don't you don't really talk Python on the podcast. It's just I kind mean, of like assumed. Yeah, I mean, it's it could be. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm uh, going about it. You know, the a different way or a way that people are are not looking for, but. Um, yeah, like if you're into data science, I guess I kind of assumed it would be like a Python. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd be applying this to your, your uh, monetizing your Python skills, like absorbing yeah, no, this I knowledge. Mean, and For sure. Mm -hmm. but yeah, good. like talk shop about, oh, do you still use Python too? Or like, what's the latest, you know, package? <laughs> I don't know. I yeah. I mean, I mean, if the, if opportunities for stuff like that crop up, I, I uh, am not opposed to um, talking shop about that stuff. Uh, was there anything in particular that, that was uh, kind of like came across your mind, I guess, for, for something no, like but that? Here, I'll throw something out, something out to you. Yeah. You're probably more of a Python expert than me, but okay. Do you know about design patterns? 
I've I've read a book on uh, design patterns, but yeah, so probably most people have. Mm-hmm. So I was recently looking for a book um, for a young employee um, to learn design patterns, and like I'm old, so I learned from the C plus plus design patterns book, like the old one. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it again? Booch or something? I can't remember. Anyway, and then there's the new design pattern book, which is like the head first design patterns, which is in Java, right? Hmm. And so I gave my employee that one because, I mean, she definitely doesn't know C++, but she also only kind of knows Java. She did Java in like one class, but she's expert in Python. And so I was like, where's the design pattern book in Python? Yeah. I think O'Reilly, I, I'm like a huge connoisseur of O'Reilly's uh, learning library. Uh-huh. Do they have a design pattern book in Python? I'm pretty sure. Well, they outsource their stuff to Packed Pub. Uh, let me, I think it's called like Python uh, Design Patterns or Oh, so I just, failed. I just failed in my searching. <laughs> I thought there was like a market opportunity. I was like, someone's got to res- write a design pattern book in Python because I couldn't find it. No, there's, so I'm, I'm just uh, searching on O'Reilly here. It looks like they had one from 2018 called uh, Mastering Python Design Patterns, second edition. And then there was one in like 2016 that's called Mastering the Art of Design Patterns. But these are all published by PackPub, which I've, those books are definitely hit or miss, but um well, I was just yeah. looking for like the design. I was looking on Amazon for design pattern books and only the two came up like, and they all get, they both get like four or five stars. Yeah. They're both, they're both quality books, but like, where's the five star book on Python design patterns? I, I think we're still waiting for it. It's, and that's what the, that's what the younger generation needs to learn. Cause yeah. again, it's like, who knows? Definitely no one knows C plus plus anymore. Very few people. Mm-hmm. Um, some people know Java, but, everyone knows Python now. Yeah. It's, I, I kind of learned it out of necessity for myself just because I needed to get more done and uh, pushing the limits of Microsoft Excel, especially that two gigabyte limit where you, you know, pivot tables crash at two gigabytes. Oh God. At you least shouldn't be working with that much data <laughs> in Excel. <laughs> yeah. So, well, that's, that was where um, like my need to nerd out on Python kind of came because I, like in the whole petroleum engineering program, it just, there was no, uh, there was, it, it was all about petroleum. There was no like programming or anything really? like that. So, yeah. Did at you least guys like use MATLAB or something. Well, there was like one semester of MATLAB. <laughs> and I, I was an electrical engineer. So yeah. we, we use MATLAB for simulation and whatever yeah. stuff we had to do back then. I, I tell you the general engineering uh, part of my degree, I'd have to say the electrical, the electrical engineering class I took was by far the most challenging. Like I, hmm. I, it was a really challenging class. I think they jammed like circuits one and two into the same. I don't know. It was like not the, the depth wasn't there, but it was intense for sure. Sorry, getting a question here, but <laughs> that's all good, man. <laughs> hold on a second oh. mm-hmm. it's all good there yeah so i guess um regarding like tips for monetizing python programming skills what are like your top three tips in like the data science department oh i mean i don't know for monetizing data science skills yeah 
Well, I mean, get a job. <laughs> or, 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 I mean, you mean for a company to be using data science to uh, just in just in general, I guess. Like, I think one of the big disconnects, like even the reason behind the whole podcast, was like there's all these like learning resources and and like hey, the wave of data science. But like, I I feel like at least like the forums that I'm on, it, it doesn't. It seems like there's a disconnect between like the learning and the knowledge gathering and the actual like getting paid for your skills. And so that's, hmm. that's what I'm seeking for is like any insight on like, okay. Yeah. Well, definitely churn is a common problem. Okay. Um, and for a company, I mean, reducing churn is money in the bank for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. So I mean, also, uh, I mean, if you sell retail products, then you've got recommender systems, which are just kind of like, you know, every company absolutely, you know, has to be, doing something with that mm -hmm. um, in the retail space. So that will definitely help your companies make money. And if you, um, <clears throat> although at the same time, you know, to some degree, all these problems get sort of outsourced by products. Um, definitely for product recommendation, not so much for churn, actually. Hmm. There's not really that many products that will that will do the churn stuff for you so that's still an area um those are the ones i'm most familiar with i mean the truth is a lot of kind of data science prediction it's kind of like a solution looking for a problem because again you know usually the prediction is only like a yes or no right kind of prediction so then it's like you look around the world like how many places in the business world can I actually do something valuable with that? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is niche specific. Like I remember, I mean, yeah, I just remember the weird things I've heard. Okay. I heard about a startup company that is predicting or that is using AI to find flaws in glass bottle production. And then you're like, Hey, who knew? I mean, but yes, flaws in glass bottles is a problem. And the, the makers of glass bottles need to find the flaws and not, you know, use, you know, put, throw those ones in the scrap heap. Mm -hmm. And then this guy was telling me, yeah, and with our, you know, AI um, vision system, you know, we reduced the number of flaws like 40%. And, you know, for those glass bottle companies, that's money in the bank, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you're not already in the glass bottle industry, you'd have no idea that like there was like an opening to... <laughs> I think this was even a startup company. I'm pretty sure it was like, a, I forget if it was a Zora customer or it was someone at a Zora conference who was thinking about using Zora. So that's how I heard about, you know, this use case. Yeah. But again, it's like perfect example. There's definitely money there, but you'd have to be in that industry to know that that was a need, mm -hmm. but it definitely has the quality that yes or no prediction, easy to monetize. Like you see a flawed bottle, throw it in the scrap heap. Mm -hmm. job done right that's perfect for ai and if you can do it better then you know then you're going to save those companies a lot of money yeah I mean, you must have some ideas like in petroleum right where that people outsiders wouldn't know the opportunity as much as people who know the domain so actually we were talking mm -hmm. about domain knowledge before there's where you really need the domain knowledge is to find the opportunity in the first place mm -hmm. Yeah, in oil and gas, I'd say it's like runtime. Like if you can 
if you can make sure that like, like uh, equipment failure or things mm-hmm. that kind of suggest like, Hey, this thing, it's time to do some preventative maintenance on this. Yep. Let's deploy some. Yep. Totally. And that, but uh, kind of, there was something that you had mentioned earlier about like really spending that time up front talking with your customer and figuring out their pains and that sort of thing. Like that makes it, it's really all coming full circle. Now it makes a lot of sense what you're talking about there. Like that's where you, that's where you find the gold to monetize, like spending that time, figuring it out. And anyway, yeah. But if you're an outsider, it's hard, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. you have to be in the industry already to, and then have the data skills, you know, to capitalize on those opportunities. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Regarding the best piece of advice you've ever received, what would that be? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Trying to think of what, what advice have I received that really changed me? I don't know. Well, all right, here's one. One thing I remember that my PhD advisor told me (laughs) in one of our first meetings clearly label all your plots and graphs yes the people you're showing them to don't know what you're showing them mm-hmm. that's and awesome. as, a, as a novice it's an easy mistake to make because you're so familiar with your data you think it's kind of obvious what everything means that you might use a shorthand or or you might use weird units like in science this comes up where the the thing might have units that are like micro somethings and the default will be to print out point oh 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 or something on your plot, but because you know it, you're not really looking at that, right? Mm-hmm. But then when you show it to an audience, they're like, "What's that point oh 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 well what?" And the audience will just shut down mm-hmm. because you didn't display it in an appropriate unit, right? Mm-hmm. That's excellent advice. If you care to con- you know convey your research or results to someone. I mean, yeah. which is super critical. Like, like hopefully you do have customers that are, you know, inter- like that you have to present these things to. So that's excellent. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully you're showing it to someone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. And the most important book that uh, we should read in 2020, you think? Well, I'm biased. How about fighting churn with data? <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. That's very self-serving. But it is a book about, reducing churn in your customers and it does look like this year might be a tough one you know mm-hmm. economically yeah so yeah it's it's uh we'll make sure they have the link to the book and um okay so going into 2020 top programming languages to keep on our radar you think oh i don't know <laughs> i yeah i'm actually a little bit of a luddite with programming languages at this point that i kind of will only learn something if I need to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I learned Python a few years back. I think you mentioned you also did. Yeah. Um, And there's so many languages. You know, I generally take a wait and see approach because a few years ago, I was like, oh, I want to learn Scala, right? Because I want to use, what was it? Spark. Mm -hmm. Well, that technology didn't take off that much. And now everyone who was learned, who learned Scala like four years ago, what, you know, what are they doing with it now? You know, Mm -hmm. but Python seems like it's standing the test of time. Seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not perfect, of course, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm not that much of a connoisseur on programming languages either. I mean, it's like, 
I mean, I probably, I don't know how many I've learned over my career, maybe a dozen approximately. I'd have to like make a list. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm definitely not looking to learn new ones. Not until it clearly has benefits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Uh, Okay, so uh, of all the cans of worms that we've opened up on this podcast, what is uh, like the general message that we want to leave people with uh, kind of here at the end? Well, a general message? Uh, Or what do you want them to leave with, I guess? Well, check out the book, Fight Churn with Data. It'll help you make great customer metrics to keep your customers more engaged. Um, And it looks like 2020 might be a pretty challenging year for a lot of businesses. So Mm -hmm. if you're in that position where, you know, you're an online product or service that can engage with your customers in that way, then you should definitely check it out. Excellent. And where do they connect with you kind of like next steps after the podcast? Yeah. So I I have a a website for my blog. It's fightshurnwithdata.com all lowercase, no spaces. Um, there's also, you can also find the book like from my publisher. Mm-hmm. Manning, um, yep. And then of course, I'm also on Twitter at Carl24K. Um, so C-A-R-L 24, like K, like gold. Gold. And uh, <laughs> LinkedIn also, although I'm not a big social person, but you know, I keep people up to date. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure they got links to all of those. And uh, Carl, thank you so much for coming on the Profitable Python and letting us borrow your brain for the last hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Excellent. All right. Talk soon, folks.